What is it like organizing a campaign? Is capitalism really the best economic system? Should the USA retreat from being the leader of the global world order? This week, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Sam Kehoe. Sam is fresh off of organizing a campaign for Seattle City Council as a campaign manager for Gene Burris. He has a ton of unique and interesting insight into local politics, and we did a deep dive into each of the questions that I mentioned before. We covered a wide variety of topics, so I highly recommend listening all the way through this week's episode if you want the full scoop. A little disclaimer, though, before we get into the episode. Sam and I are by no means experts on politics. These are just our opinions based off of our own knowledge and experience. So if you have a dissenting opinion, we would love to hear them. Message us on any of our socials, which are always linked in the show notes of this week's episode. That all being said, let's hop into this amazing conversation. Sam Kehoe, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for being here. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Thank you. Excited to be here. Absolutely. So for the listeners who may or may not know you, could you give a little bit of introduction to yourself, where you're from, what you're interested in, a little bit of the reason why you're here today? Uh, Sure. So uh, I was born just outside New York City, but I grew up um, just outside Seattle, Washington, Um, and I spent about three or four years out there um, working mainly in field politics in uh, the suburbs around Seattle. And then this past year, I was campaign manager for Gene Burris's Seattle City Council campaign, um, which was a city council campaign in 2019 for the sort of downtown heart of Seattle. So downtown where the Space Needle is and where the waterfront is, sloping up into more of the suburbs of Seattle was kind of the zone I was working in. Mm. Perfect. Have you always been interested in politics? or? Um, I've always been interested in how how people get along and interact. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, uh, I'm third down of four brothers, um, which means that, like it or not, I'm a diplomat. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so uh, I think that's sort of natural, you know, being, being raised in a situation where, you know, you, you compromise or you don't get a turn with the football. Um, yeah. I, I think I can I, – I try to bring that value um, to the communities that I live in. And right now, I think – in in Seattle, in Washington State, and in Washington D.C., and frankly around the country, I think we're hurting from misunderstanding. Absolutely, and that's one thing that I want to try to address. Sure thing. So, how this is a little off topic, but I would love to get your take on how to address things like that. Can you give a little bit of a backdrop? What do you think is happening in the country right now that's causing division, and then what what do you think actually solves that? Um, I think it I think it's a top down problem with a bottom up solution. Um. I think that, um, you know, we had, for, you know, really since the fall of the Soviet Union in the 1990s, like, we had this, you know, they, they call it like a new world order, this idea that, you know, we're going to have these grand sort of supranational um, liberal institutions, um, and, you know, we're going to have free trade is going to is gonna become more prevalent, and through that, um, we're going to sort of rise beyond our 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 petty identities in nations and and within nations. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, I think there's a, I personally believe there's a lot to be gained from that. I think that if you look at the economics of free trade, you know, it generally creates wealth. The problem is it doesn't create wealth for the same people in the same places. Mm-hmm. Some are winners, some are losers, mm-hmm. even though there's a net gain. 
And so people who weren't vulnerable before become vulnerable in our society. And because of that, you know, you had all these leaders at the top saying, look, by like the by the macro metrics, this is a good thing. And yet you have smaller regional communities going, actually, we're hurting from this. And this is coming from a Seattleite, someone who, frankly, was part of the, the winning side of the tech revolution. You Absolutely. Know, we have Amazon and Microsoft and um, and Starbucks, you know, uh, the things that are all of a sudden representing a new American society are the places that my home benefited from. But at the same time, you know, you drive two hours outside Seattle and you're in an impoverished county that's, you know, a farming community that all of a sudden, you know, free trade has lowered the, the net price of that commodity and they're suffering out there. And and finding a, and, and again, that's within a two hour span of just my hometown um, and finding a way to make a system that works for both those people, I think, is where it starts. And I think that it starts not with leaders. I think we need to stop looking at at presidents and Congress people to be moral figureheads for our society. Like, I think that starts with being a good neighbor, which is why I find it most rewarding to work on on municipal, local, and state-level campaigns. Because that's not about, you know, what's what's our reputation as, as you know, the, the head of the nation. It's more about what does it mean to provide for your neighbors and be a good neighbor to each other? How do you and being neighbors is a compromise. You know, you might want a tree for to grow some apples, but it's casting shade over their, um, you know, over their living room. You know, that's about co- and and frankly, we see the best political co- cooperation in our neighborhoods. Mm. Um, and so I think I think politics should be less about what it means to be something and more focus on being a good neighbor. I absolutely love that. That is such a great way to start this conversation. So I wanna I wanna dive really deep into your own experience. In particular, something you mentioned in the beginning about being a campaign manager. Not even being in college yet, you have what I see to be a very unique experience in in political activism slash organization. So can you can you walk me through how do you even get to a point to have this opportunity to, to basically run someone's campaign? Right. Um, well, I like to say that opportunity in politics are problems. Um, and so I, I happen to have like gained just some really entry-level experience in, in field politics by interning on a state senate race and a congressional campaign mm-hmm. for the past couple of years. I think prior to getting involved in my um, Seattle campaign, I think I've... I've probably by now. I think I've probably I'm approaching having knocked on twenty thousand doors personally, Dang. Um, Dang. which builds the calves. <laughs> no, definitely, um, and the character to be able to speak to people you don't know. It's it's true. I have been called names that I didn't even know existed before. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, and so I happen to have, and through that, you know, I I would watch, you know, my bosses, you know, on the campaigns, watch how they interacted with, you know, when a media organization came in to interview the candidate. You know, I'd done a few fundraising calls, things like that. But really entry-level stuff that, frankly, like, frankly, any high school student, you know, can, can get involved in. You, know, you fill out an application, they they send you out, and you can knock on 20 doors, and all of a sudden, you know, since, since campaigns are always starving for interns because mm-hmm. it's just people power knocking on doors. Um, and so I happened to just have – I'd been doing that a lot, and I was um, – uh, you know, we, I was getting dinner with um, – uh, Gene, who would end up running for city council um, with my family, and, and we were talking about all the problems that Seattle was facing. Um, you know, we have a housing crisis and also a housing regulation crisis. We have the third largest homelessness population um, 
in the entire United States. We spend the most per capita on homelessness, and we're not seeing the problem getting solved. We have a very, an increasingly bad uh, police officer recruitment and retainment issue. Um, we have officers quitting at record rates. We have officers that, um, you know, are, we see arrests that aren't getting prosecuted, misdemeanors that are just, um, you know, getting glazed over by the prosecutor's office, and even violent offenders who are arrested by the police in the same day they're out. Um, hmm. because the prosecutor doesn't prosecute them. Um, and there's a variety of reasons for that, and it's a multi-layered issue, but it it doesn't take a trained eye to see the problems that Seattle's facing. You go to downtown, you go to our tourist district, you see the homelessness issue, you see the fentanyl crisis, you see, you know, the the places where there are, you know, very, like, very clearly people who need help where we certainly should have a social worker or a police officer or an EMT there, and we just don't have it. And the reason we don't have it is because they're not supported by city leadership. And so, you know, I was I was fresh off the 2018 election cycle, so freshly out of a job. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we were, we were talking about the, um, you know, the problems that Seattle was facing, and, and my, my candidate was sitting there going, you know, if I was on the city council, we'd be doing this, this, and this. And I said, you know... You could be on the city council. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we got a process for that. Um, and then a couple weeks later, it turns out that the incumbent wasn't running for re-election in that seat. And so I said, we need to have lunch right away. Yeah, um, yeah. And so we went back and forth for a little bit. And then finally, um, you know, we, we decided that we were going to launch this campaign. And we didn't. We lost in the primary. It was the most crowded field, I think, in Seattle's entire history. Mm. There was 10 candidates running for only, or nine or 10 candidates running for our seat alone. Yeah. Um, and across the city, there were over 50 candidates Dang. running. Dang. So it was a crowded field. Um, and uh, although we, uh, you know, we didn't triumph in the primary, we lost in the August primary. We have a top two system. So top two vote getters move on to the general election, mm. which is. What do, you, what do you think about that system? Um, you know, I, I, I'm generally in favor of top two primary systems. I am as well, yeah. Um, just because I think that. Um, well, I like I, I'm I'm actually generally in favor of a, a somewhat two party system because in my opinion there's no much there's nothing scarier than an open primary and okay. party leadership both on the Republican side and the Democratic side, oftentimes it's able to like weed out some folks that maybe aren't too qualified to be running for seats and in that I I personally sort of like that check even though it's I understand that's sort of an an elitist idea yeah but also like. You know, anyone who's worked on a political campaign knows that at a certain point, it doesn't matter what platform you're running on. It's just how hard you ran on it. How many doors did you hit? How much money did you have? Which oftentimes has nothing to do with the actual merits of your ideas or the characteristics of your candidates. Yeah. Sometimes it's just about the money and the doors. Um, that being said, um, there is still some party control and influence on both the Republican and Democratic side in top two systems. The party can throw its support and you know the people it pays to canvas and things behind one candidate and not another. Yep. And and then at the end of the day, the voters can still really have their say, going well if we're a far, you know, if we're a heavily concentrated far left district, you know, we're gonna want we're gonna want a moderate Democrat and maybe a more uh, radically progressive Democrat on the ballot, or the same for you know a rural Republican district, a, a more hardline conservative versus a moderate conservative, as opposed to putting someone on the ballot who really stands no chance to begin with. Mm, no, I agree and. I actually think that system in general is very interesting because it breaks down partisanship. Um, because instead of it being... Uh, one thing that I find quite concerning when it comes to, to elections in general is the fact that even if 
let's give an example of the rural district you were talking about, rural conservative district, where there hasn't been a Democrat winning there for like the last 30 years. I think it's much healthier to have competition among ideas. And even within each party individually, there is a wide variety of like health and there's healthy competition and being able to argue those things out instead of just saying democrat republican force a divide between the two of them when in reality the idea of like a democrat or the idea of a republican is something that is subjective and requires that that healthy debate to fully understand where you align and what candidate you align with so i actually think that proposal would disrupt a lot of I don't want to say corruption, but partisanship that we're noticing. Yeah, uh, and and I do, and people actually, I, I believe, are at least in my experience, are motivated by ideas and not partisanship. Mm. Um, and we saw that. So in Seattle, it was technically a uh, a nonpartisan race. Um, so on the ballot, there wasn't an R or a D next to anybody's name. Oh, interesting. Um, so and that's that's how it is for most uh, city council elections. But what what ended up happening was, you know, you would run, and a lot of our a lot of the candidates said, although there's no R.D. next to our name, you know, I'm a progressive Democrat or I'm a I'm a moderate Democrat. Um, my candidate was a um, an independent, um, which is ideally how every candidate should have been in the election. Mm-hmm. Um, but we were really. But what was interesting is in Seattle, independent means not progressive, and not progressive means Republican, from huh. the perception of that's of so interesting. Voters. And I mean, to be fair, there. That's that's not like an inaccurate perception because you either say you're a progressive, w- which is you know, so in Seattle we actually have um, well depending on how this uh, the general election is coming up, no like November fifth I think so it's mm-hmm. imminent. Um, but currently we have an actual member of a socialist party, Shama Sawant, um, wow, who is elected on the city council. She's been there for a bit, hmm. um, and so there's that like that's sort of the the political dynamic in Seattle. Like when people ask me, you know. Sam, are you a Democrat or Republican? I go, well, I'm a Republican, but I also work in a city where we have a socialist elected, and I've seen what happens. You know, I've seen, you know, you know, tens of thousands of jobs leave across the lake and then across the state. You know, yeah. um, I, you know, and I've seen, you know, a real drop off in desperately needed law enforcement officers. Um, and and so the interesting thing is, we were going out there and going, no, we're not a progressive, and they go, oh, okay, we understand what you know, what kind of candidate mm-hmm. you are. But frankly, that worked to our benefit because I have, I have sort of this prediction that in progressive Western cities, we're going to see a revival of a kind of metropolitan conservatism in downtown metropolitan centers. What what makes you think that? Um, well, for a couple of reasons. Um, number one, so we went out. We were running on a couple things. One of which was in opposition to um, a downtown local improvement district, a lid, which is um, sort of a uh, it's it's a very boring tax mechanism um, that that I, unless it's on your tax bill, in which case you know you see your tax bill going up by five or six figures just because you live in a certain geographic district mm. for a project that the city is trying to build. Um, and uh, so we were running on that, which was sort of a a fiscal efficacy standpoint. Like this is not an effective or or fair way to raise taxes. And then we were also running on on public safety. Um, which, because we have this tremendous officer shortage, and frankly, like, like anyone who has, who has known someone with the disease of addiction in their family knows that it is a destructive disease that can entirely take over a person. Um, and 
the and the important thing about that is anyone anyone who has had personal experience dealing with the disease of addiction knows that you can't enable it. You need to treat it. You need yeah. to overcome it. Um, yeah. And that's exactly the opposite of what the city of Seattle and a few western cities across the seaboard have been allowing. They have had metropolitan policies of enablement. Uh, in fact, right now there's a big debate in Seattle was whether or not um, we're going to create heroin and fentanyl injection sites, which mm-hmm. are basically zones in the city, um, or there's some talk making it like a mobile van where you can safely, um, well, safely inject fentanyl and heroin and you won't be prosecuted is sure. the idea. Yep. And the the theory behind it is that, well, if you can supervise, then you can administer Narcan and prevent overdoses. Yeah, yeah. Um, which, I mean, it's true, but the reality is if you're addicted to fentanyl, that's a deadly drug. And mm-hmm. you see people in Vancouver, Canada, which is where... It's the idea started, right? Right. And there's actually an active site up there. Okay. And you see folks, you know, um, just overdosing again and again, this time with higher and higher doses. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the higher the dose, the more dangerous Absolutely. The, the drug. And so we're saying, no, like, it's not humane, compassionate, or progressive to allow people to be con- to continue this addiction. What we need to be doing is putting resources into treatment centers. And the numbers for the number of people that are going to be lifted from addic- addiction from rehab and treatment centers are going to be lower than the number of people that you save from overdoses. Mm. But the reality is, you know, you can have the same person coming in overdosing four times and that person is in no better circumstance before or after. We need to be lifting people out of addiction. And with that too, that frankly, like the hard truth of it is when someone is addicted to drugs and when somebody's in dire circumstances, crime goes up. That's that's a reality that a lot of people see. Like I mean, I was I was working in downtown Seattle, which is a it's like a it's like there's a lot of wealth and affluence in the area like i parked like right next to the amazon headquarters most days because yeah. that's just what was around yeah. um and even in those concentrated areas of wealth there were certainly people that needed i mean you you could see either having a mental illness episode sure. or or tweaking out on a drug and what we need is and then you have you know at the same time you have children walking their kids to school i was up in a neighborhood called magnolia which is more of a suburban part of seattle and i went to door door after door and I kept hearing stories of yeah we've been showing our you know 6-year-old kid pictures of heroin needles to teach them not to pick those up hmm. because that's a reality that they face every day hmm. um and so because of that I think that um what we're going to see and what we already saw in Seattle um is this resurgence of of folks that are saying no what we actually need to do is be supporting law enforcement making sure that crimes are prosecuted and making sure that we aren't enabling um, addiction, but we are providing resources to lift people out of mental illness and addiction in an effective manner. Um, and what's interesting, there was a we had a town hall um, during one of the uh, like during the election cycle, and there was this um, the the issue at the city hall was or at the city hall meeting was whether or not we were going to put enhanced Seattle Police Department patrols in. Um, in like tourist areas for the tourist season. And um, there were a few members on the council who were adamantly opposed to enhancing police patrols. Um, and so a bunch of you know, citizens from Seattle come to testify. And you know the city's in dire straits when people take time out of their day to go to a city council meeting. Yeah. Um, that's, uh, that's when you know that something is very wrong. Sure. And there was this fellow who got up there and he said, um, you know, I'm from uh, you know, the south side of Chicago. We do not have a good relationship with law enforcement there. Um, there is real um, 
you know, there's real tension there that needs to be addressed. And, you know, I was, you know, I, I come from a place where, um, you know, you like the police are just as dangerous as other things that you face. Um, and then he said, but on this particular ordinance, this is the first time in my life when I have said, thank God for the Seattle police department. Mm. Um, and, and I think that we're going to see more of that once people are sick of division, um, I think we're going to see more and more people like taking pragmatic approaches to to solving issues. And public safety is a high mode is is a highly motivated um, charged issue because if you don't feel safe walking your kids to school, it doesn't matter Republican, Democrat, Socialist, Libertarian, it doesn't matter. You're going to vote for whoever's going to come in and say, "I'm going to keep your kids safe." Yeah, um, which is a good thing. Um, in it's a good thing that he, that there are issues that will bring you above partisanship, and it's opportunity to say, hey, here's something that we can actually come together as a community and figure out. Because there are, we, like, we need to do this equitably. You know, we cannot be, um, you know, marginalizing communities in the name of public safety. But it's, al- it's also a scary thing because, and you, and you see this on, on many levels nowadays, when people are afraid, they'll vote for anything to remedy that fear. Yeah, if um, they speak to them, then they'll vote for them, right. pretty much. Which is why it's so important to have pragmatic, common sense candidates running for office who are saying, okay, we're going to solve this problem. We're going to bring law enforcement and communities together to make sure the people feel equitably safe and protected in a responsible and professional manner. Mm -hmm. But what you can also have is, you know, people running going, you know, it doesn't matter. We're just going to, you know, really take the knuckles off and go at public safety 100%, which prior, you know, um, which has been the strategy before. And, you know, and it has yielded mixed results what we need is responsible people running for office because there is opportunity for people to abuse the fear of the electorate at this point in time absolutely what about progressivism do you view as being non-pragmatic especially when it comes to city council because i i only am familiar with progressive activism and progressive democrats for example on a national level and to some extent from a senatorial position but what does it look like on a local level right um well, a few things. Number one, um, so as in, I think, every major metropolitan center, infrastructure and traffic is always an issue. Yeah. In every downtown, there's traffic. Um, and um, and frankly, with this, um, we have such, especially in Seattle, we have such a focus on being eco-friendly um, that we actually end up you know, tying ourselves in knots as opposed to how exactly to be eco-friendly. Hmm. So you we're the city that brought the nation the plastic straw ban. And actually increase the amount of plastic that are used in in cups because the you know the the sippy cup lid that you put on the cup is more plastic than the straw yeah, itself. Yeah. Um, and uh, in a similar way, you know, we have there's been an active um, you know we are big on bike lanes in Seattle. Yeah. Which um, like my dad is a huge cyclist. Like <laughs> I am I am not anti-cyclist. Um, <laughs> that being said, Seattle is a rainy hilly city. Yeah. Um, and when we take away lanes of traffic to you know, put painted bike lanes, which get slippery when wet. Um, even though you know, we, we get tied up in the idea of it, the idea that we should be a, a cycle-friendly city, um, which is not a bad idea. It's an altruistic, good idea. But in practice, you have taken away a lane of traffic. Um, and then uh, you have more cars. You have the same number of cars or more, given the number of people moving into the city, in fewer lanes of traffic, which yep. actually enhances congestion, which means that you're sitting in your car you know, burning gasoline for, you know, an hour longer than you would be otherwise without the bike lane. Hmm. So although, you know, you know, like our, the, 
like, do we need, like, would it be better if we had more public transit, more people cycling to work in theory in terms of climate change? Sure, it would be. In practice, the best way to relieve climate change, especially in our area, is to actually make traffic move faster. Um, you know, do we need to invest in public transit in the greater Seattle area? Sure, we do. But what we should also be doing, because we're still a car culture, if we get cars moving faster and not sitting in traffic all day, that's actually the most utilitarian way to cut down on congestion. Mm. And so you get caught up in the idea of being eco-friendly and the image of you know people putting on their helmets and cycling to work and never yeah. turning an ignition switch. And then you actually end up increasing uh, congestion and the amount of gasoline you're burning. So would you be against something like a traffic tax? I know New York City is about to implement it, I think, this year or sometime in the future. There are other cities like London that have done it. Is that something that you think facilitates a transition or does it mess with it seems like you you have an interest in economics does it mess with demand and and the way that things function yeah um well so i frankly i'm i'm sort of indifferent to the um to the question of it simply because it's a choice sure. like what you're gonna have is like it's a regressive tax you're gonna be especially in seattle when we have a housing crisis it's very hard to live where you work in seattle so what you're gonna be doing is you're gonna be hitting you know middle-income commuters that commute into the city for their jobs. Yeah. And if you are willing to pay that price because of, you know, the to, re to reduce the amount that people are driving cars, then you should pass that legislation. Um, I, for one, am more, like, I'm more focused on relieving, you know, housing issues and being able to allow people to equitably um, live and work and get between those two places. Um more so than I am interested in, in because that that tax it's going to dissuade people from driving, but it's not going to dissuade you know six seven figure Amazon tech executives from driving in. Mm -hmm. What it is going to do is it's going to dissuade middle income folks who already have it tough finding a way into work in an, in an affordable manner to begin with. Yeah, but in many ways, right, those six seven figure individuals they are a minuscule proportion of the population. It is. It is an unfortunate question that, that I wrestle with a lot when it comes to, to taxes, when it comes to the conversation we're having about the concept of taxing as a country right now, because I think in many ways the middle class gets the, the short end of the stick regardless. Either, for example, the, the tax cuts that just came out, um, or didn't just come out, came out in 2016 benefit the top 1% far more than the middle class. At least that's the way I view it. As some some other researchers have indicated that as well. We could definitely have a, a conversation about what your thoughts are on that. But on the flip side, if you levy higher taxes, where else is that coming from? The middle class again, because the top people who have companies, for example, someone like a Jeff Bezos, if he realizes that his income is diminishing rapidly because of taxes, what is he going to do? increase the amount of for the cost of the products that are on his site so and who's buying those people of the middle class some people of the low class also people of high class but that tax functionally then gets positioned back onto the individuals who are buying the consumers so it's such a it's such a hard conversation i think especially for the for the climate change question cuz i don't want people who are struggling to struggle more but it's like, how do you shift what needs to be done? Do you know what I mean? I, like, I do know what you mean. And I think um, I think that an underlying assumption that we 
that a lot of our public discourse gets caught up on when it comes to the question of taxation and who gets taxed is the implicit assumption that more taxes will lead to more solutions. And I don't think that that's always true. Yeah. So, like, in Seattle, given it's just – given the tax structure that it has now, given the fact that our economy is, is, is growing and has uh, a lot of jobs coming in rapidly, we have record revenues. We have record revenues. And we also have record – like, we, we have to see problems getting worse. We see the homelessness crisis not getting solved, even though we spend the most per capita on homelessness of any city in the United States. Depending on how you measure it, some even say, you know, you could – just rent an apartment for for every homeless person in Seattle, hmm. given all the different. Which is something that, that people on. recommend sometimes as well, like with a right to housing. Yeah, it is. The problem is there's no houses. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and and frankly, there's no, in my opinion, there's no reason that, you know, that just because you're in, the, like, there's a question of who gets first dibs if you're going to say that everyone has a right to housing, mm. when there's always housing is by its very nature difficult to manipulate the supply of housing. Yeah. Um, and so, um, you know, Seattle is grappling right now with a lot of zoning laws as opposed to since we have a lot of areas that are still sing- single family zoned um, and of course how do we up zone and create a larger supply of housing and then make sure that we have transit systems that allow people to move throughout the city and not create congestion and and if you live in one place are you going to buy a house there so that you can work in downtown or wherever it is that you work yeah um but like when when it comes to taxes like we have like the head tax for example is a, is a perfect example of this I, this thing that was targeted at big corporations, right? They called it in Seattle the Amazon tax. And basically it was, it, uh, in my opinion, one of the worst tax proposals I have ever seen, ever. Um, but uh, it was it was first $500 and it negotiated down to $250 per job. And so it was taxed corporations. Hmm. Um, and it was the, the city council unanimously passed it and then unanimously revoked it because <laughs> the city, the people of Seattle organized yeah. and said... This they, is terrible. It's, it's it's terrible because well one they they pitch it as a tax on Amazon. Amazon has too high corporate profits. So we're going to tax every person that works for Amazon. But um, you know it also taxed you know uh, Dick's Drive-ins, which is a, a a burger chain that's sort of iconic in Seattle. Mm-hmm. Um, which uh, which you know it's 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 a burger place. You know you paying five hundred dollars per number of worker you employ if you're you know a burger joint or a grocery store. That's yeah. With places with slim margins like that, that's not equitable. That mm-hmm. what that's going to lead is people who have good, you know, you know, medium and entry level jobs not having those jobs anymore. Yeah, exactly. So exactly. It was it was reversed. But the but my problem was, um, and and this is this is sort of a a controversial opin- opinion of mine. But I don't see a large problem with the wealth disparity. Mm-hmm. If you go to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation in Seattle. The only thing that you can think walking out of it is thank God for billionaires. The work they've done in addressing malaria in Africa. Frankly, the work they're doing in addressing climate change from everything from, um, you know, uh, toilets and plumbing systems that use less water to small nuclear generators and finding efficient ways to transition to nuclear energy, which is, I believe, the only sustainable way that we can actually create a power grid Hmm. that isn't going— a, a climate-friendly power grid. Sure. Okay. Um, and the work that they've been doing in that regard is incredible. It is incredible, and the only way they can do it is high-risk, low-to-no-profit ventures, which is and, – and people say, oh, well, it's a tax break. They're just doing all this charitable stuff to not pay taxes. But if a byproduct of paying fewer taxes is curing malaria, <laughs> that's not a bad byproduct in my view. Sure. Um, and like I, when we talk about, oh, well, people should pay their fair share – 
paying their fair share into what bucket? Like, do we really think that enhanced revenues to going to the federal government um, or going to, at least in my experience with the municipal city of Seattle, enhanced tax revenue doesn't doesn't enhance the quality of life for anybody by any significant amount. Inevitably, they're pushing to raise to generate more tax revenue to raise more taxes. In some sense, you know, like we have a soda tax in Seattle, mm-hmm. which raised a lot of revenue because a lot of people drink soda. Um, again, that's a regressive tax, you know, uh, be, especially because, you know, you can buy more expensive alternatives. Um, uh, and th- and that tax, it didn't it didn't d- decrease soda consumption drastically. Are we better off for a few fewer people drinking fewer soda? I don't think significantly. Hmm. And that tax revenue had no measurable effect. It just went into a big bucket of spending. So I think th- I think that's the problem. The idea of who should pay for what. If we're just going to throw it into a government bucket that isn't actually going to enhance our our spending, especially if it's and the federal government's a different story because we have a deficit crisis. Yeah. But on a state and municipal level, I think the assumption that well you should pay more taxes and pay your fair share, I don't think that it's going to purchase anything all that effectively nine times out of ten. Interesting. Okay, so I want to push back a little bit on on the concept of a wealth disparity being a positive thing. Um, I think you make an incredibly compelling case, but I want to know what your opinion is on on this concept. So I've recently, uh, well, I'm actually taking a class here at Georgetown that revolves a lot around the concept of racial capitalism. So I may or may not have been radicalized by this class, <laughs> but there are some interesting concepts. So one idea that I find kind of interesting is that the idea of providing money through the nonprofits, for example, like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, is a way of appeasing the people in the center to say, well, look, look at how good we are to be able, look at, look at how virtuous we are as rich people to help you to we're, we're just so good but it allows us to prop up a system that is potentially exploiting us on a day-to-day basis and they're able to cherry pick for example malaria let's solve malaria let's focus our efforts in africa and try and raise people up which to you're very correct to indicate is a positive thing i am not criticizing them at all but what do you think about the idea of propping up a system? Maybe this gets to a deeper question of whether or not you think capitalism is exploitative um, and whether or not you think it's something that's a proper functioning system or how you might you might change it. But what do you, what do you think of that argument? Do you think that's that's valid to some extent? Do you think, no, I actually just care about what happens in the end result or do we care about things like intentions? What What's your perspective on that? Well, I think the question of capitalism and whether or not it's exploitative... I mean, the short answer is I don't think that capitalism is exploitative. Um, But I think the more interesting question is that we're asking it in America here and now. Mm. Because if you look at the numbers, it is almost indisputable that a global capital system has benefited humanity. We have not only a lower poverty, extreme poverty... Uh, rate. We have a lower extreme poverty rate globally. Yeah. We have a lower number of absolute people in extreme poverty worldwide. Yeah. Like not only the rate has driven the num the absolute number of people has fallen, even though our population has is increasingly growing. Um, so from that standpoint, um, it's interesting that right now we see this big wave of questioning whether or not capitalism is a just system mm-hmm. in uh in a country that one is the number one economy in the world is a developed economy. Um, 
and because we we do see that in the global system in terms of marginal gains if you know people around the world are making massive marginal gains in terms of being lifted out of extreme poverty the places where the marginal gains are slowing down is is here in America um where you know, like like middle like middle income America the places that are and and low income America the places that are losing marginally in comparison to um the economies around the world and so when we look at it depends on who you're talking about is capitalism some does capitalism sometimes create losers in some areas sure mm-hmm. but in some sense that's sort of it's it's a it's a privileged argument in the sense that we the people who have already won so greatly from uh from the system of global capitalism in America are now asking well now that our comparative gains are lesser than those around the world mm. um then maybe we should be re, you know rejiggering the system and yeah. and frankly that's that's not an unfair question yeah. and which is why i think you see bernie sanders and donald trump who are on opposite ends many would argue of the political spectrum having similar ideas about about free trade um we need to close off our country to benefit americans not the rest of the world mm-hmm. so when we think about nationalist isolationist sentiment in america it's not a left right issue it's a i think that it's a it's a it's a broader discussion on what happens when our comparative gains are lesser than those around the world yeah no i agree and this is a question i've been having a lot with my roommate who's been on the podcast before um about and and you mentioned this in in your little opening about about yourself the the question of the global world order something that is uniquely constructed by Americans for Americans in many ways after the Cold War. Once the Cold War dissipates, the USSR is gone. We no longer have a bipolar system. In many ways, the United States becomes a hegemon. Being able to control, in like wh- whether it be through political intervention, like things like military intervention in Latin America, in uh, Asia, wherever it may be, or it specifically be that our economy is just simply the strongest. We had a lot of power to influence what the world looks like. And now we're questioning and asking, should we continue in a system that we have created for our own benefit? Or should we say, I'm going to tap out now and cede our authority to people uh, in China for th- for the Chinese model, which is in many ways an authoritarian capitalist uh, group, even though they they call themselves communist, or whether or not we should look at a Russian model, which is almost like a capitalist oligarchy, where with a few people having a ton of control and that being connected to the economy. I think it's it's very interesting and it's a very unique question to our time, because I don't think we've ever experienced one state being able to have so much control over the world. And now questioning, should we have that control anymore? Yeah, I think it speaks to a deep-rooted American insecurity. Hmm. For some reason, um, and you know, you could, I'm sure there are all kinds of academics and scholars smarter than me who can who can speak to this, but somewhere along the way, we did. We started to question, like, you know, is exerting American influence just more, do we, is our culture... The, the people who who dwell and create and and live within the American you know stratosphere of culture started to question well should we be spreading that around is is our culture somehow a, is it a disease that we're spreading as opposed to a cure hmm. 
And I think that, I, well, I, I generally have a problem whenever we get to debates about this culture and that culture, because culture is just who we are, you know, especially in a free society like America. Culture is what the people make of it. Um, and I think, especially when we look at the tail end of the 20th century, it's hard to dispute that American culture has been good for the world in the aid that we provided Europe and Japan and South Korea mm-hmm. rebuilding after various wars. But the but the but I think the hopeful, the view that I subscribe to, which is more hopeful, is that our, our culture isn't about our country anymore. Our culture isn't, you know, Eisenhower going in and building highways. Our culture isn't General MacArthur on the Korean Peninsula. Our culture isn't Patton. Our culture, and this is sort of why I'm, I'm so supportive of, of the of larger of of larger corporate influences on America and the globe. Hmm. Like um, the world isn't going to be changed because a president comes into the Middle East with an army. No one's heart is going to be changed by that. Um, but what is going to be changed is a Starbucks opening on your street. What's hmm. going to be changed? There's um, this is very this is a very interesting concept. Yeah, well, there's a KFC. In Mecca, yeah, um, and I don't know if you've ever had fried chicken, but I think that we can get past any cultural divides through it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm plant based, but I have had my fair share of, of fried chicken. Okay, so I think this opens up a whole other point of conversation as well: the question of cultural appropriation and cultural diffusion in in our in- interactions with other people. Um, it's a tough conversation because there. We're both taking international relations right now, um, and so I've I've tried to keep up a little bit more in the theory and how things affect, uh, especially how cultures can affect other cultures. There's a book that that actually argues that McDonald's, that it, America's not like the the hegemon. It's it's McDonald's <laughs> that their influence around the world is disrupting what culture looks like. Like in many ways, they're our populations, for example, in Japan, never had fast food before, never had issues with, like, incredible issues with obesity or diabetes, type 2 diabetes. Now, all of a sudden, huge problem with it. Um, so it's, it's an interesting question to ask yourself of whether or not American culture, quote-unquote, which I think is a very loose term, and it's hard to define, is something that's positive or negative, um, I don't know. It's it's such an interesting and it's very hard to isolate, right? Cuz like analyzing cultures, cultures change constantly. Like especially in an age where we have social media, like I sure as hell know I so I haven't been using my phone as much ever since I got to to school. I sure as hell know I don't feel as caught up in pop culture because it's just so fast. And I think that's the same thing that happens in our news media. It's like every five seconds there's a new thing. It doesn't help that we have someone in the White House who kind of likes that and kind of likes to dramatize politics. And, I mean, there are other people on the other side of the aisle who enjoy that as well. But I don't know if that... I think these are healthy questions to ask ourselves. Yeah, and I think um, when we look at, at culture in the context of a more connected world. I think that there's this um, implicit assumption that I'm not sure is true, which is that if we all are communicating more, we're going to kind of homogenize 
our global culture. That yeah. somehow we're all going to become a same mixture of of what were priorly prior isolated countries and I- isolated cultures around the world. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I think I don't think that's true. I think it speaks to something in human nature where we tend to group up, you know, and we've grouped up around really bad, harmful things that have caused a lot of division and, frankly, violence. You know, when we when we group up around things that are intrinsic about how we were born and somehow which make our differences insurmountable when mm-hmm. we group up around religion or race or gender. Um, uh, but I think that there are also healthy ways to group up, you know? That's, that's what a dinner club is. Yeah. Um, and I think that we, we're seeing this reaction against a globalized, connected world and, and, and culture with a lot of these ideas around appropriation. We all of a sudden, there's an, in, there's an insecurity, right? There's a, well, if, we're, if everyone is, is taking from everyone else, well, who am I? What am I, what am I left with? What, am I, what, what have I contributed? And are people going to rule me out because they've all of a sudden just appropriated my contribution or my group's contribution? And, and I think that's an interesting, I think that the, I don't think that we should be putting up screens around our cultures. Um, I think that what, what we should be doing is is fine. I think the key to, and this, I think this is political and cultural and familial. Um, the the key to overcoming these these large differences and divides that all of a sudden seem to be heating up so much. It seems like there's so much friction between between political groups and 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 different communities in the, around the country and around the world. What you need to do is find people different from you, working in good faith, <laughs> because as cultures and countries interact there are going to be mistakes yeah and if you and if you are you know looking at someone across the table and knowing that they're coming from a place of good faith then i think that we will see questions of appropriation and diffusion sort of dissolve away this I, this this idea that we i need to i need to stake out um you know who i am as opposed to you if you trust that that person understands and sees you with value, I think that we can overcome a lot of the things that our world is grappling with culturally. Mm. And I think that's the key, especially when it comes to the political divide. It's not about whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. It's about whether you're a person working in good faith or a person working in deception. Love it. All right, I have last two questions for you, a little rapid fire. Number one is what concerns you most about politics right now at least in america maybe even globally what what's your concern nothing interesting okay i think i think that it's not even about who won in 2016 i think that we would have seen a disruption of the status quo there were there were people who were hurting yeah um and the system wasn't working for them and and for us and a system that isn't building that isn't 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 creating gains needs to be changed and in and it's painful it's a painful destruction to watch it's chaotic it's crazy that being said like this destruction is necessary it's not partisan it's not a republican or democrat thing our 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 systems would have been questioned 
and changed and disrupted regardless. And I don't know in what manner. Mm-hmm. It just so happens that I think it came through the 2016 election, but I don't think that's what it's about. And, I, and frankly, we're going to see an ebb and flow. Our generation is the generation that's going to rebuild. We ne- in some sense, you, you can feel this cultural and political venting, this sort of airing of grievances, this, this, in, this intense outlet of, of anger. But also, we're all right. We, like, as, like, as an American society, are still together. Mm. It's ugly. We have ugly, ugly moments. Um, that being said, I think that it was something that was bound to happen regardless and all I see is opportunity to come together, especially for our generation in the decades ahead. Love it. Love it. I think that's a perfect place to leave off on. So, Sam, thank you so much for being here. I thank love you. this. <laughs> I, ac- I absolutely love this. This was a lot of fun. <laughs> so, for anyone listening, if they want to reach out to you, for example, talk a little about these ideas. Where can people contact you if you're okay with Oh, sure. Um, you can shoot me uh, an email, swk forty one at georgetown.edu um, or you can reach out to me on Facebook I'm Sam Kehoe nerdy guy with a pink tie <laughs> <laughs> um, that's me you can always that's how I found there. him <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah <laughs> love it anyone listening thank you so much for listening to this episode if you're watching thanks for watching as well if you want to see any of our visual content it's up on our Instagram and on our Facebook so make sure to check it out but as always this is the DWD podcast signing off until next week we out peace